Friends, it is such a joy to be here once again with you. I'm Joey Tuttle. I was a Jubilee Fellow intern here last summer and had such a delightful time getting to know many of you uh, and serve the Lord together. I'm so grateful to you all for the kindness, the love, and guidance that you showed then and that I'm sure you're showing Graham as well. It's a great joy to be here right now with you to dwell in God's word together. Now, we are in a sermon series titled Images of God's Ministry, which goes through some of First and Second Corinthians, letters from Paul to the church in Corinth. Last Sunday, you looked at the church as the aroma of Christ and how God leads us and has led his early church and followers into new areas through sometimes unexpected ways. You looked at reflecting a beautiful smell to those who are receptive to the gospel message and a pungent smell to those against the Lord. You talked about the importance of knowing when and how to evangelize and when one must move on and when one must continue helping someone through a process of faith. This Sunday, we'll be looking at a passage that, well, in some ways extends that thought process and in some ways offers this different idea, this entirely new idea from Paul, an entirely new metaphor. We are jars of clay. We will first look at some context and then look at what the passage says that we are and what the passage says God is doing. With that in mind, please now hear the word of the Lord from Graham. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being over, given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal body. So then, death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Graham. Will you pray with me? Lord, as we look at your word today, we thank you. We thank you for the opportunity to study your divine message, to study the Holy Word. Lord, as we reflect on your word today, please work in our hearts and give us the message you wish us to hear. Lord, let the words that come from my mouth not be my own, but be yours and yours alone. Thank you for your guidance, Holy Spirit, and please guide all of us in applying what we learn today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Friends, that passage was 2 Corinthians 4, verses 7 through 12. Whenever we look at scripture, it is so very important that we look at the context, specifically the macro and the micro. What do I mean by that? By macro, I mean all of 2 Corinthians. Let's look at who wrote it, why he wrote it, that sort of thing. And by micro, I mean the verses surrounding this passage. 
So friends, let's begin with the macro. The Apostle Paul is writing to the church in Corinth here. This is his second letter to them, and he has both some encouragements and some concerns that he's sharing with them throughout this letter. We'll look at some of those concerns in a moment, but first, let's think about the context of this church that he's writing to. The church in Corinth. Now, Corinth, as a location, was settled a couple of times, and the Corinth that would be contemporary to Paul is the Roman Corinth, which was settled by, well, a bit of a surprising group. Instead of the typical wealthy or Roman army veterans or anything like that, Roman Corinth was largely settled by poorer Romans. This included some foreigners from Eastern Mediterranean. It included some freed slaves, those who were no longer servants or slaves. These were the ones who settled and built up Roman Corinth. Which is what's so fascinating about this. When Paul is writing to them, Corinth itself is quite wealthy. Corinth, though settled by this porter group, ends up quite wealthy due largely to the opportunities provided by its location. You see, it was located on this thin strip of land, mostly surrounded by water, that connected Peloponnese to the mainland, and it separated two seas. And so because of that, they had a lot of trade opportunities there. Additionally, every two years, there were the Ithsminian Games, which was a large event with a variety of sports and such. So Corinth had a lot of financial opportunities. It's a pretty well-off area. Additionally, Paul knew this group, right? He knew many of the church members through previous visits and even name-dropped several people in this letter. He has connections with the church in Corinth. That's who he's writing to. That's who he has several visits with. And now he's writing to them for a second time in preparation for yet another visit. And he's got connections to Titus. Titus. He was one of Paul's mentees in a way. God used Paul to introduce Titus to the gospel. And since then, Titus has been helping out in a variety of ways. Here now, he's delivering some information about Corinth to Paul. And then he's going to deliver this letter back to the Corinthians as well. And later on, he'll continue some missionary journeys with Paul. Then there's Gaius. Gaius was a leader in the Corinthian church. He had a house there, and he was even baptized by Paul. Aquila and Priscilla as well, they were likely former slaves, Jewish, and were quite welcoming to Paul when he would come to visit the church in Corinth. There's so many more, but those are just a couple of the connections that Paul makes in this letter. See, Paul writes this letter with a lot of encouragement, but he also writes it with some concerns. One of those ongoing problems, it seems, would be unrepentant sin. This is running rampant in some, but not all, of the church members in Corinth. There's a big difference, right? between sinning frivolously because you can and being renewed, trying to change for the better, understanding that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. So unrepentant sin is a concern in Corinth. 
Another concern was kind of more of a dispute between Paul and Corinth. Uh, Tension in ways of administration. You see, Paul and Corinth had different thoughts in terms of finances. Corinth wanted to supplement Paul's income while he was in Corinth. And Paul wanted to keep his occupation as tent maker. So that was kind of just a tension that was already brewing between the Corinthian church and Paul. And then there's this problem with some new folks in town who are directly opposing a lot of what Paul taught and what Paul thought. In fact, since they already had some disagreement over finances, it's possible that the Corinthian church was more willing to listen to these uh, new folks. Paul, on the other hand, he had some problems with them. Paul has problems with some false apostles in Corinth. Who were these false apostles? One commentator suggests that from context clues and from scripture that these were Greek-speaking Jews who recognized Jesus as Christ, but had some thoughts that seemed to be a bit out of alignment with Christ and his teachings and what Paul would go on to teach. They seemed to boast, to think of themselves quite highly, and to be pretty either law-based or legalistic in their uh, approach. See, they seemed to be focused on the old covenant, whereas Paul encouraged and reminded the church of the new covenant in Christ. That yes, the law is important and it guides us, but also remember what God has done in the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross for complete forgiveness of sins. It's a balance, right? Don't frivolously sin, unrepentant. Don't focus so much on law that there's not room for grace. Commentator Paul Barnett summarized these false apostles like so. For their part, these newcomers legitimated their ministry in Corinth over against Paul by commending themselves, by boasting of their achievements and by classifying and contrasting their strengths with his perceived weaknesses. Friends, keep an eye out in this passage today for how the truth that Paul explains contrasts with these methods of the false apostles. So that's the macro. What about the micro? In the chapter before this, chapters before this, Paul covers a lot. Some aspects of that include a focus on giving God all glory when it comes to good that has come about, the pain that he has had in previous visits, the importance of forgiveness toward one another, the church being the aroma of Christ, sufficiency of Christians coming from God alone, not one's own merit, the boldness of a Christian, and the importance of staying true to God's word. And then after this passage, Paul talks about the importance of keeping hope, reminds of the heavenly dwelling, talks of the importance of reconciliation, talks of cleansing oneself of sinful behaviors, encourages generous giving, and so much more. That's just the first couple of chapters right after chapter four. Friends, if any themes stand out there, reflect on those later. As all scripture is God-breathed, And Paul's reflections, they all connect to these wider themes that we talked about in the macro. So with all of that in mind, let's take a closer look at 2 Corinthians 4, 7 through 12. To do that, let's look first again at verse 7. 
Here's verse 7 again. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Jars of clay and treasure. Those don't seem like they go together, do they? One's really nice, treasure. Gold doubloons for pirates in all our pirate movies, right? Maybe a beloved family heirloom. Family itself is treasure. But in jars of clay, jars of clay, easily broken, disposable, the everyday containers of New Testament times, not anything fancy schmancy, the ordinary. Dave Boston, in his book, What We Are, Images of Ministry, he describes the clay pots as the paper plates of that time. And yet, this treasure is in those jars of clay. On this imagery that Paul provides, what are the jars of clay and what is this treasure? The jars of clay, ordinary, easily broken, those are us. We are jars of clay. It's like Sarah was talking about in the confession, right? We're not like those highbrow jars for anointing the head of the king or for funeral preparations. Ordinary jars. The paper napkins and tinfoil and plates at Hot Dog Wednesdays and Fourth of July. And yet we hold this treasure. Friends, the treasure is the gospel the good news, God's salvation plan through Jesus. It outshines what's holding it. It's like a piece of candy, right? In a candy wrapper. I mean, are, when you think of your favorite candy, are you excited about it because of the wrapper or the design on the wrapper, how the ingredients are laid out? No, you're excited for the candy that's on the inside. We are the wrapper. The gospel is the candy there. It's the greatest treasure of all. And it may be in ordinary jars of clay, but that doesn't mean that the jars of clay are in charge of it. God is, right? All the surpassing power belongs to God. We'll talk about that a bit later on as well. Dave Boss puts it this way, the gospel is extraordinary, but the ministers who serve it are ordinary. And that brings us to our first we are of today. Verses seven through nine show us that we are broken and afflicted. Friends, this is so true. We are broken. Ever since Adam and Eve ate the fruit, ever since the choice was made to sin, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, we are broken. Broken clay pots. We need only look at the world around us. Violence, injustice, innocence in harm's way, anger, corruption. And we need only look at our families, at ourselves. Anger, Pain, broken relationships, anxiety, depression, addiction. We are broken. 
Paul put it this way in Romans 7. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. On our own, we can't. Even though we are renewed in Christ and guided by the Holy Spirit, we are still broken, broken people. So thank God for grace. In sending his son to die on the cross for our sins, we can take comfort in the forgiveness of sins for those of us who have accepted that gift. Yet, we are still broken. Yet we do what we don't want to do. One result of that brokenness is the suffering that we see all around. So in this passage, there is suffering that is directed specifically at Christians and also kind of this more general suffering. So first, we are hard-pressed on every side. That might be the pressures of the world, right? Might be temptations towards depravity, towards brokenness, towards that sin that you keep going back to over and over again. Might be the allure of the secular. That might have been what it was for the Corinthians, right? They were surrounded by all of these different um, mercantile systems, these games and everything, and there was bound to be some seedy stuff going on there. Might be pressure to give up on faith, right? That push especially now that push in the modern world towards post-secular society, the, the idea that we are beyond religion, pressures of the world surrounding. Next, we are perplexed. It might be doubts, right? Those little doubts that come up once in a while. Doubts about maybe God's goodness, maybe doubts about the fact that you're made in the image of God. Might be intellectual doubts as you're looking through scripture and wondering about something and have questions. Might be doubts from a traumatic experience. Could be any number of those things. Also, we are persecuted. Now, that might be in different ways in this context, and this location. But it still does happen, maybe sub- more subtly around here. And that deadly persecution still happens today in various parts of the world. I'm sure some in the USA, but also in some other countries where Christianity is explicitly outlawed. And we are struck down. We can be struck down in lots of different ways by illness, literally by illness or with violence or with dangers or figuratively with the pains and the sorrows that that seem to permeate throughout this life. We are afflicted. Well, that'd be a dour way to end our conversation, wouldn't it? But that's not the end. 
some simple words in that verse that change everything, but not. Each of those things that we just talked about are in there, but not. Right? In verses 8 through 9, we are presented with tough things that we go through, but not the toughest. By the grace of God, not the toughest. We are hard-pressed, but not crushed. We are not crushed by the weight of all this stuff going on, all the horrible things we may hear about in the news, all the things going on in life that seem to overwhelm and take up all our time and stress us out. But we're not crushed. For we hope in the new heavens and the new earth to come and the redeeming power of Christ that is at work even now. We are perplexed, but not in despair. There are seasons of doubt, of pain, of anguish. We need only look to the Psalms for that with David and what he went through. We can look to our own lives as well. You know, I know I had a, I had a pretty um, big season of doubt and perplexion um, when a friend of mine passed away unexpectedly. And those can be ongoing for a while. We are perplexed, but we're not in despair. God brings us through it. He does. Persecuted, but not abandoned. What a comfort it is to know that God is with us. That God is always right there with us and that he is guiding us. It's the footprints in the sand, right? (laughs) The story of the man walking along the beach and when he goes through a tough time, he only sees his set of footprints, not God's footprints. It's because God was carrying him. Struck down, but not destroyed. We have hope of the resurrection of eternity with God through Christ Jesus. Reminds me of the many passages in scripture about enduring suffering. We have that eschatological, that end times hope, the hope of the eternal when Jesus returns and we have that comfort and peace too. That comfort and peace that Jesus himself suffered. He endured far worse suffering than anything we will. Being beaten, flogged, dying on the cross with the weight of countless sins upon him. And we can have comfort that God is with us in suffering and that he brings peace. 1 Peter 4, 12 through 16 says this, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed. The spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear his name. Praise God. Friends, we are broken and afflicted, but also we are changed. 
Once again, 2 Corinthians 4, 10 through 12 says, we always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that his life may be revealed in our mortal body. So then death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. This gospel message has transformed us so that we carry around the death and the life of Jesus. So that we carry around this death of Jesus, this gospel message, the understanding that Jesus died on the cross for the complete forgiveness of sins of those who accept that grace-filled gift. And he rose again from the dead after three days and has ascended to the heavens and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. We carry the death so that life may be evident. Or as verse 11 continues to clarify, we are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that his life may be revealed. We know the gospel message and we are to live the gospel message. Through our suffering, through our everyday life, but also through our suffering so that it may be on display for others to see that God is good even in the midst of suffering, especially in the midst of suffering. We suffer and Jesus can be revealed in how we respond to suffering. Friends, suffering leads into deliverance. God can work together good through all circumstances. What might that look like? It might mean that you're able to help someone who's going through something very similar to something you went through. It might be something you don't even realize, but God is at work. God is at work, even when we don't always see it. Barnett, again, put it this way, it is by this twin reality of suffering and deliverance in the lives of the slaves of the slave, that being Christ, and only by means of it that the true character of Christ's unique salvation was and continues to be manifested in the world and extended into history until the appearing of Christ. Friends, we are to follow the model set by the suffering servant by Christ. We are to follow whatever God's will may be. Where you go, I'll go. Where you stay, I'll stay. When you move, I'll move. I will follow you is to be our prayer. And in this deliverance, in this gospel spreading, where is God? All friends, God is at work. He is at work all over in this passage. Let's consider again verse 7. This treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. God is the one at work. Right? It's like the Holy Spirit is the one who leads people to Christ. We are the containers of this gospel message, but God is the one who changes the heart. We are the tools sometimes used in God's great grace to spread the gospel. Paul Barnett, when reflecting upon this, wrote, because the glory is God's glory, 
the bearer must be dependent on God, which indeed Paul's missionary sufferings caused him to be. And that is one of the key differences between these false apostles and Paul. They boasted their strength, their accomplishments, and Paul understood his sufferings, his shortcomings could be worked for good by God. And not only that, Paul understood that the the accomplishments, those were not his accomplishments, but God's and God's alone. He has the power to transform. We are the ordinary clay pots that God in his beautiful mercy and love used to spread the message of salvation. It's not you or me. It's God in us. Yet not I, but Christ in me. God is at work, friends. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.